0: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to our podcast. Very glad to have you here with us. We have, um, are done for now with Proverbs and with rest. Uh, we've had enough rest. We're ready to get back into some hard work. And we're um, beginning a, a series of 13 uh, discussions on the Book of Deuteronomy. My name's Cameron, talking to you from Launceston in Tasmania.
1: Yeah, good day, everybody. Ken here. And
0: I'm Luke.
2: And I'm Lachlan from New South Wales.
0: Now, the quarter... Uh, in the seventh Adventist lesson quarterly, uh, this next thirteen weeks is on Deuteronomy, except for the first one, which is all about uh, the context of Deuteronomy. It Sounds the cynical side of me uh, says that that sounds as if they only had twelve discussions, and they had to fish around <laughs> for for an extra one. But perhaps I'm being unfair on them. Certainly, there there is merit in discussing in discussing the the context of anything before before you sort of dive into. The topic, and I it just so happened that I preached a a sermon last week at Launceston that ended up in Deuteronomy. So uh, I have the notes here in front of me, and it does provide some interesting context. But it also um, begins with a fantastic question, which was asked of me by my son. He we had read through the story of the ten plagues, and he said, "Why?" His question was, "Why did God want to send the plagues?" Because he hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he could send the plagues. And that's a good question. That's a better question than the one that is often asked, which is why did God harden Pharaoh's heart?
1: Mm. And I mean, the, the the interesting thing about that, um, Cameron, is that uh, often we uh, cut the question off at the knees uh, because we say, well, of course, God didn't want to send the plagues. Or we say, of course, God didn't actually harden Pharaoh's heart. So we... We, we start there and we say, well, actually, the premises of the question are, are not right. What do you say in response to that? But then you, that?
3: you have the immediate follow-up question, which is, why does the Bible say God said God did that, if he didn't?
1: That's one good response.
0: Um, yes. But in this particular narrative, and there are other places where it says God did things, mm. uh, where I think we would, why did God cause this man to be born blind? But the, I think we would say in the case of the men born blind that God um, didn't really cause, actively, you know, intervene to cause that man to be born blind. I, I don't think you can apply the same uh, strand of logic to the story of the Exodus quite as easily. I think, I think to say that God didn't want to send the plagues requires you to modify the story in so many places mm-hmm. and to change... To change what seems to be very essential elements of what's what's going on, at least um, you know God's mighty hand of deliverance is referred to so often elsewhere in the Old Testament, and the Exodus story is is such a formative narrative that that I think it's a difficult one to dismiss. Um, God God hardens Pharaoh's heart, then he kills off the firstborn of Egypt, and. Uh, <clears throat> What we're going to do is we're going to, this will end up in Deuteronomy, but we won't get there till the end. I thought we'll just quickly go through and look at the verses in Exodus where the narrative writer records God's motivations, God's actions and his motivations, things that God specifically does and and why he does them. We're going to skip over passages about what happened Um and what he tells Moses to say and what he tells Aaron to say and all the rest. But we're going to we're going to sort of narrow in on, on what God's actions are. So um, there's going to be a lot of verses, and they're going to move sequentially through um, Exodus 3 up to about 12. So I thought, uh, Locke, you should start with this one. It's, I know it's one of your favorite passages, and it's an idea that you've cited on this podcast previously. Do you want to read just some excerpts from Exodus 3, verse 7 on? All
2: right, so this is the... Uh encounter at the burning bush, by the look of it, and I'll read some excerpts from the message. God said, I've taken a good long look at the affliction of my people in Egypt. I've heard their cries for deliverance from their slave masters. I know all about their pain, and now I have come down to help them, pry them loose from the grip of Egypt, get them out of that country, and bring them to a good land with wide open spaces, a land lush with milk and honey the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite. The Israelite cry for help has come to me, and I've seen for myself how cruelly they're being treated by the Egyptians. It's time for you to go back. I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the people of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses answered God, but why me?
0: Yeah, and uh, God has a fair bit to say to Moses at this point and give him a pep talk and bolster him up. Uh, we'll skip that section. Ken, do you want to read verse
1: nineteen and twenty? Yeah, I, I was. I, I just always enjoy uh, verse eight, though, uh, with all the ites, the Canaanites, <laughs> the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Hivites, the Parasites, and and I've just put a little note in here. It's it's really tacky, but I've I've just put a little note in mind there, and the termites and the Vegemites. Yeah. Um, <laughs> nice. So um, anyway, 19, 19 and twenty. Uh, but I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. After that, he will let you go.
0: So now the podcast's over because we've answered the question. We have, why did God? Want, why did God want to send the plagues?
1: Because the Israelites were oppressed, and He was going to rescue them.
2: Yeah, uh, but it says it says in verse 19, it's because God knew that without the plagues. Pharaoh wouldn't let them go, which of course makes you wonder why there was any need on God's part to harden the heart of Pharaoh.
0: Yeah. The other question, which is one that's sort of lurking in the background, which will, is the sort of flip side to the question we're currently asking. If God hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he sent the plagues and he was capable of doing this, why did he not soften Pharaoh's heart so that the people were not even enslaved in the first place? Yeah. I think I genuinely do think that, Locke, that the narrative has an answer to this question um, and that we'll, we'll find as we move through. I just want to point out, though, that you can't escape from it very easily because it's very premeditated. If we go uh, a little further on, Moses has, goes back to Jethro and he says to Jethro, I have to go to Egypt, and then he goes to Egypt. And on his way to Egypt, the Lord said to him, so I'm now on verse 21, but I don't have the chapter in front of me. What chapter is it? Four. Four, verse 21.
1: We're going to. I'm just going to sidetrack this just a little bit here because the very next verse is a fascinating one. The very next thing that happens is at a lodging place on the way, the Lord met Moses and was about to kill him.
2: Yeah, yeah. I was noticing that. I, I needed my seatbelt on to avoid whiplash right there, Ken.
1: Um, uh, so how how did that come about? It it seems to have something to do with circumcision because Sapphira fixed it all by getting a flint knife mm. and circumcising. But uh, anyway, I, I, let's not get distracted with that question because otherwise the podcast will be far too long.
0: It's, it's a question that passage, Ken, is not something I feel at all able to explain. So <laughs> we'll throw that to our listeners, and if they wish to explain it, they can, by emailing us at at Uh So it's a very premeditated action on God's part.
2: Mm-hmm by the way cam i'd not noticed that before the the already already here is a mention of that final plague
1: mm. yeah the interesting thing about it too is um you see god's the connection that God is making between you are killing my firstborn son, I will kill your firstborn son now we, we have a a um an aversion to revenge um, uh, it seems somewhat distasteful uh, and yet we love. Revenge movies, *Taken*, *Man on Fire*. You know those movies. There's a real, uh, there's a sense of, of of justice that that you get in in those movies, and and I think I wonder whether or not maybe you see a little bit here of those things. You know, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Uh, there is a sense in which one can at least say, well, if the punishment needs to be proportional to the crime then there's a way in which this is so mm. uh, and and when you look at the, the the other part of it um how many of the israelite children were killed yeah i was thinking about spawn. that because the the story of
2: moses of course begins decades before this when moses is saved from the destined destruction by that basket mm. in the river
0: mm. and i'll We a point is often made that the plagues refute Israel's gods, uh, not Israel's gods, Egypt's gods. Um, They worship the sun, so the sun's darkened. They worship the Nile, so it turns to blood, etc., etc. As far as I know, they did not worship their children. So Mm. the plague on the firstborn is doesn't seem to fall into that category. And I do kind of like the idea, in a sort of a odd way, of God saying, "Well, yes, I need to establish my identity as a preeminent God, but the thing that concerns me most were all those." Babies, you threw into the Nile. Yeah, that's that really gets me cross. I mean, the fact that you're worshiping frogs and other things—that's unfortunate. But but this is something that is will will be the climax. We try to have it both ways. Why doesn't God intervene when there's pain and suffering
1: happening in the world?
0: Why doesn't He step in and do something? Oh, what He stepped He stepped in and done something. Now
1: He stepped in and done something in circumstances where, if in our modern world we saw this happening, there would be peacekeepers from the United Nations intervening, <laughs> at least if it was in an area that was oil rich. <laughs> you know, th- this this would be uh, international outrage at the genocide that the Egyptians were uh, committing. Mm. And it would be expected that something would be done about this.
0: Yeah. And... It's not an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth because the Egyptians killed every male child and and oppressed the Israelites. The story begins with the Israelites' cry. Mm. There's a multi-generational oppression. And God does not kill every Egyptian child, just the firstborn. So that's... I mean, this doesn't solve the problem that we were talking about earlier where where it says in the verse that we just read, uh, right at the start of the story, I will harden Pharaoh's heart if he refuses to do what I want. I will kill his firstborn child. I, that that is still makes it uncomfortable. But there is, in the context of what's happening in the story, it's not the only uncomfortable thing that's, that's in this story. There's the decades of oppression. Hmm. And extra elements get brought into this story that are not there at the start. The start, the motivation is quite clear. God says, I will want to rescue my people, and it's going to be hard. I just know it'll be hard, and I'm going to have to do something pretty spectacular. So hold on to your hats. And then... When Moses goes to see Pharaoh, Pharaoh introduces a new element. And uh, he, Pharaoh says at the start of chapter 5, who, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? And from this point on in the story, God, when he does things, when he brings plagues, he says, I will bring the frogs or the gnats or the hail or something, and, and then they will know that I am the Lord.
1: Well, it's interesting, Cam, because you just read the first part of the the. Verse two, which was Pharaoh's question, he follows up his own question with his own answer. He says, "I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go." So Pharaoh makes his intention, states his intention very clearly there at the outset. I will not let Israel go, um, uh, and and so and, and he maintains that intention right throughout. Indeed, even after the first plague. Um, Uh, even after the very last plague where he relents and lets Israel go he changes his mind again or indeed he simply reinstates his original intention that he stated right here at the very start. So letting them go was a brief interlude in an otherwise set will uh, and determination.
0: And uh... It's worth pointing out that at the moment, although God has said that he will harden Pharaoh's heart, he hasn't done it yet. So this, this statement that Pharaoh makes is his own statement. There's no suggestion in this statement right at the very beginning before the plague start, that God's done any hardening of Pharaoh's hearts. What happens after the first plague? Let's skip through and have a look. I think it's worth doing. Well, what happens after this, the snake when the staff turns into a snake? And I'm looking now at verse 13, but it's,
1: Yeah, it'll be chapter 7, verse 13. Uh, So after the snakes, Mm. Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Yeah. Yet Pharaoh's heart became hard and he would not listen to them, just as the Lord had said.
0: Okay. Uh, There was a verse that I missed in verse (laughs) 3. Verse 3, God uh, states his intention again to harden Pharaoh's heart and that he's going to do mighty acts of judgment. But in this time, he adds a phrase. So he says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. I'll do mighty acts of judgment. In verse 5, it says, The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And that's a Mm. new addition, but that's in response to Pharaoh's question. Yeah. So what we see here is so far in the story, although God has stated his intention to harden Pharaoh's heart, he's not done it yet. At the moment, he's giving Pharaoh some freedom to decide how these negotiations take place. God is behaving as an agent, at this stage at least, as an agent, free agent, amongst free agents. Mm. Pharaoh says, oh, "Well, who's the Lord?" And God says, "All right then, if if that's the terms on which this is gonna gonna happen, we'll introduce that." And then and then with the snake, it says, as you read, Ken, that Pharaoh's heart was hard, but it doesn't say the Lord did it. And what happens at the end of the the plague of blood, the end of chapter seven?
2: Yeah, still Pharaoh remained stubborn. Pharaoh remained stubborn.
1: Yeah. Pharaoh's heart became hard. Mm. He would not listen to Moses and Aaron. Ooh.
2: Became is different, but I need to turn... I need to, If we're going to start arguing about the nuance of the wording, I can't do that from the message tonight. Well, so.
3: we, we maybe don't have to argue about the nuance of the wording. I have a question that, that is raised in my mind as we look at this, um, which is, do you think the authors and the way they thought and their language of of Exodus made a distinction between predicting something was going to happen and causing something to happen. Because that's a distinction that we make with our language and our way of thinking. That there is a difference between saying something is going to happen and causing something to happen.
0: And Luke, when we say we have free will, no one who believes in free... It always amazes me that people who argue against free will um, use arguments that no one who has ever believed in free will would ever disagree with. They say how people are as statistically predisposed to act in certain ways well that's what a personality is you know i i walk i walk into a bookshop or i see a movie or something and i say ah luke luke would like this That that's a limitation on freedom in fact we have heaps of limitations on freedom i see an airplane and i say ah luke would like this it's a 10 million dollar <laughs> private jet but i know that he won't buy it i know that he won't buy it um <laughs>
3: So have you have you in in the minds of the Old Testament authors caused me not to buy it?
0: <laughs> well, well, in this case, Luke, that that is it so, some interesting... I have
3: I've got I've got a I've got a problem. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we have to have words. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I wanted a um, million dollar jet, and you've just prevented me from buying it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but but uh, the fact that Pharaoh said the fact that God said in that earlier verse, I know that. Pharaoh won't let the people go unless I do mighty signs, mm. is, is not necessarily a limitation on free will, except the sorts of limitations we all have by being a pers- a personality, like a, a character. We have a character trait. But in this mm. passage, Luke, it is actually interesting that in the different plagues, distinction is made about causation. And at least I checked three translations, and they all made a distinction. So if you look at the end of the second plague, it doesn't say that Pharaoh's heart was hardened, which is what it says in the narrative so far. What mm. does it say at the end of the second plague?
2: Ah, yeah. Well, I've now turned to a to my New American Standard Bible, which is a very literal translation. But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and did not listen to them, as the Lord had said.
0: And I think there's, there's a subtle point here. Pharaoh's the king of a powerful nation, and someone's just turned up saying to let the plagues, uh, the, the, the slaves go free. Of course he's going to say no. Hmm. There's an instinctive gut reaction. You know, Mm. there's an automatic response. If you stepped out your front door and someone threw a a cream pie in your face, unexpectedly, your actions over the next few minutes are not going to be totally consistent with rational thought, perhaps. I mean, there's going to be an element of just response in that. Mm -hmm. And so what's happened so far is that Farrah's heart was hard. But after this plague, it says he hardened his heart.
2: Well, I was going to comment on the fact that the, the narrative has set us up because way back at the burning bush, God has already told Moses, look, I know a thing about this Pharaoh. This Pharaoh is going to be pretty stubborn and he's not going to want to mm. let you go. And then when we first meet Pharaoh, Pharaoh says, I don't really know this God. I'm not going to let you go. So mm. so we we right away we see, ah, there's a power struggle here and there's an imbalance in the power struggle right up front because... Pharaoh doesn't know anything about this God, but God seems to already know a fair bit about this Pharaoh.
0: Yeah. And, yeah, exactly. Um, but, but God, and uh, the other thing that's worth noting, Lot, is that God begins with plagues that have a very minimal impact. It's uncomfortable to have frogs around the place and mm. to have the river turn to blood for a few days. And it's a bit amazing to watch a staff turn into a snake in front of you, but it doesn't really cost you. It's not mm. like, It's not like losing all your livestock or all your crops. Or your firstborn mm. son. So uh, the order of the plagues is in order from from least long term consequence to most long term consequence, loosely. Mm. So mm. God God is actually saying there is an imbalance of knowledge here, and I'm I'm going to work to rectify that. I'm gonna I'm gonna teach Pharaoh who I am, and I'll choose to do it first in ways that are spectacular, but that don't hurt anyone too much. Yep. And there is a verse that we'll come to later on, halfway through the plagues, where God says to Moses, go and tell Pharaoh, you're playing with fire. Don't you realize that I could have just wiped you all out from the start?
1: There are two very interesting uh, uh, directions that those observations take me to, Cam. One is uh, going back, probably going back in time, to the story of Job and looking at the Parallels between mm. the experiences of Job uh, and the plagues. Uh, now, they're not complete parallels, but there's certainly boils, and there's certainly the loss of children, um, and there's certainly uh, the damage to livestock uh, and animals. So it's interesting to see those parallels there um, in in the book of Job. I'm not sure what to make of them. I, I, simply raise it as an observation. The other very interesting thing is, uh, and it comes from a hymn, uh, which I think has its basis in, uh, in, uh, the scriptural narrative about the Garden of Gethsemane. And that is, uh, yeah, when was it Peter raised his sword to, you know, and cut off the, uh, high priest servant's ear. And Jesus said, look, put, put that away. I've got tens of thousands of angels. I could call down, uh, and sort this out if I wanted to. Um, uh, but that's not how this is going to be resolved. Uh, so in a sense by God, God, God is saying a similar sort of thing here in his interaction with Pharaoh.
0: Yeah. And we haven't quite got there yet. I, the reason why I brought it up is because I'm worried that I'll miss it in my enthusiasm when we get there. Um, but, the, but God says to Pharaoh in this process, I've exercised restraint, which is not something we associate with the 10 plagues. Mm. So, and, and it, it produces an effect. At the end of the third plague, so I'm looking at verse 19 of chapter 8, I think, yep. third plague, yep. the yep. Um does, does God's action uh, produce any positive effect among the Egyptians?
1: Very Interesting.
0: The magician said to Pharaoh...
2: This is the finger of God.
0: Yeah. Yeah, who that's hardens, interesting. Who hardens Pharaoh's heart this time?
1: It is simply said to be hard, but Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he would not listen. Yeah. Just as so the there, Lord had said. Just as the Lord had said.
0: Yeah, which is interesting. There's, it's interesting that they don't describe the hardening of the heart in the same way, hmm. and a difference must have been made for some reason. What about the end of the flies? The, um, the Well, the flies uh, is
2: interesting because very... this is the first one where Pharaoh does sort of relent. He says, "He says, you know, make supplication for me. I will let you go into the wilderness to to sacrifice, only don't go mm-hmm. very far away. So then Moses went out from Pharaoh, made supplication to the Lord. The Lord did as Moses asked, removed the swarms of flies, but Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. So it has an effect more profound on Pharaoh, but once the once the the disturbance is alleviated, Pharaoh res- defaults back to his hard heart
1: state. I think there's a very interesting psychological uh, element of the, of the narrative, and and it's a comprehensive one. And it, and it, in some ways, it addresses the question that you raised, Luke, um, uh, because it's covering the fact that Pharaoh's heart. Is hard, as a matter of fact, without necessarily dealing with the question of causation. It covers the fact that his heart became hard. Um, uh, it, as a, uh, just as an objective fact, it it became hard. Uh, it covers the fact that Pharaoh was active in the hardening of his heart. Um, mm. It also, interestingly covers God's uh,
2: interaction
1: with, well, it covers his foreknowledge of the fact that those things would happen. And it also covers his interaction with a hard heart and a choice to have a hard heart. Um, it at least covers that. It may be that's what's being referred to as God's, harden pharaoh's heart or am i being a little too easy on god
0: well um. well <clears throat> it's certainly the case that we've gotten this far through the story and god has not hardened pharaoh's heart god said he will but he hasn't done it yet and so maybe maybe the reason why why didn't god soften pharaoh's heart and and make him just spontaneously let the the slaves go free why, why did he harden the heart to send the plagues to set the people free? What if the answer to that question is, uh, because that's what Pharaoh chose?
3: Well, in in which case, how is it that the Bible can say God made it happen?
0: Well, the reverse is an interesting perspective. And I've thought a lot about this, Ken, based on a comment that you made. Um, we claim that the reverse can happen in the Christian faith. We claim that we can come to God and we can say, take away my heart of stone, give me a heart of flesh. Um soften our hearts. And we, we come to God and we pray to God and we say, I I do these things and I don't want to do them. I want to be a better person. Can you be active in my life? I've made this choice, but I I don't have the capacity fully to realize this choice. And, and, and God says, well, yes, I will. will We believe that God through his spirit does work in our hearts in order to, uh, turn our desire into a reality. We sing this uh, classic
1: song, Change My Heart, O oh God. Make it ever make new. It ever
3: new.
0: Mm. I mean, at the end of the next plague, the fifth plague, it just says Pharaoh was, his heart was hardened.
2: Yeah, but the, bo- the boils. So I was starting to wonder, Cam, whether your punchline was going to be after that preliminary verse way back at the bush. Actually, God never hardens Pharaoh's heart, but no, I, I noticed that after the boils in, in chapter 9, Someone's verse been 12... And the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he did not listen to them just as the Lord had spoken to Moses.
0: We're past halfway through the story and, and it happens, but it doesn't happen uniformly from now on. So after the hail, uh, after the hail, which is verse, we're in chapter nine now, aren't we? Yeah, chapter
3: nine, verse 27.
1: Yeah, is which Pharaoh is really interesting because yes. this time he says, this time, I have sinned. (laughs) He doesn't recognize any prior time as being a sin, but this time I have sinned. Well, it's interesting. So what is it that makes him say now, I recognize that I have sinned? Just a little
3: side note. I think that Pharaoh would fit very well in our modern political system. (laughs) (laughs) He's got got the language and the the, uh, communication style and the... uh, The philosophy of it all, very, very down pat. This is
1: the politician's uh, apology.
0: Yeah. And then, of course, later on in verse 34, um, this is really interesting. Again, I didn't bring this out in the sermon. It says, this time I've sinned. And then in verse 34, when the hail and everything stopped, he sinned yet again.
3: It's it's, it's even more interesting. Moses was not fooled in verse 29 and 30. He says, yeah, okay, I'll stop the thunder and hail. But I know that you still don't fear the Lord.
1: Yeah. Mm. The other interesting thing here that I think is quite fascinating is that in verse 34, he and his officials hardened their hearts. Now, I'm not entirely sure about this, but I wonder whether there might have been a difference between the officials, Pharaoh and his officials, his administrators, if you like, and the magicians earlier on who recognized that this is the finger of god. Oh, that's um, an interesting idea. Uh so those in the, the uh uh the religious advisors if you like um, yeah. um, are now marginalized because this is hard-nosed politics.
0: And hmm. and and I'd, I'd love to have been a fly in the room in a later plague in the fl- plague of hail. It specifically mentions that the people in Pharaoh's court who respected Moses went out and protected their own animals, put them under shelter so that they didn't die from the hail. Mm. And, and so this is another example where God's gradual introduction of himself to the people Mm. um, benefits the Egyptians, not just the Israelites. And I love, I love the idea of the people sitting there in Pharaoh's court, keeping an ear out. And Moses says, there's going to be a plague of hail and the, and the, and the king says, oh, this is appalling. What a useless guy this Moses is. And then all the officials say, hmm, oh, yes, he's a pest. He's a, he's a dangerous pest. He's Moses is he's a very bad person. And then quickly running out of the room saying, quick, quick, move my cows under shelter. Hurry, yeah. hurry, <laughs> hurry. Um, uh, certainly, in, certainly in the passage we've just read, it really does stress Pharaoh's own agency. When Pharaoh saw the rain and hail and thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and mm. hardened his heart's. He and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hard. Why? Why was it hard? Yeah, it was hard because he he hardened. It. Yeah, um, and that's... that it it, it go, sort of goes out of its way to really emphasize the
2: point. And by describing that hardening of heart as a sin, it's pretty hard to then say that in hardening his heart he's doing the will of God. Like this, it's is a bit of a circular argument here, but. If we mm. say ah God was wanting to harden Pharaoh's heart so now Pharaoh's hardened his heart so that's doing what God wanted well that would hardly be a sin would it uh,
3: And 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 yet Lachlan, uh, Exodus 10 verse
1: 1
2: Yes I don't have yeah. it Yeah <laughs> You're right <laughs> You're right uh, yeah yeah, the Lord said to Moses, go, because I have hardened his heart. Yeah, and the heart of his servants.
1: So that I may perform these miraculous signs.
3: So now we have a motive for God to do this. It, 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 it I mean, my, my previous desire for some some ambiguity of language is gone here. This is very clear. God does this because
0: he wants this It's clear this at the happen. end of the plague too. So yeah. if you look at the end of the plague of locusts, that's one of the plagues where it does say that God hardened Pharaoh's heart.
2: Mm. It's interesting. The motive here, though, has shifted slightly. The motive has shifted slightly. God, in in chapter 10, verse 2, God is saying that one of the reasons that I'm going to do this is because I want you to be able to tell in the hearing of your son and your grandson how I made a mockery of the Egyptians and how I performed my signs among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. His original motivation was that Pharaoh would know that he was the Lord. But now he's describing this in terms of the descendants of the children of Israel.
0: Oh, look, there's back earlier on. We, we didn't read it, but uh, straight after Pharaoh um, says to Moses, who is the Lord? Mm. Not straight after soon after um, he imposes the penalty of making more bricks, but without straw and the people Mm -hmm. get discouraged and they get upset to Moses. And, and God says, you're going to have to go explain to the people who I am. I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And I did this and I did this. And I revealed myself to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but I did not reveal to them... I did not reveal myself to them as the Lord. I was not no. known by that name. Um, but I will from now on be known by that name. And and what I'm about to do will... In other words, this whole thing is not just an educational exercise for the benefit of the Egyptians. Yeah. It's the Israelites. Everyone in this story is ignorant about who the Lord is.
2: Yeah, right.
0: Um, so... <laughs> So, but that's very much sort of brought into the story from people's ignorance.
1: Speaks to the human condition quite well, universally. As in,
0: I think I think you're right when you say there's shifted motivation, but it's shifted in response to what? And, and the way the story has unfolded so far, and it is true that twice we've read that God hardens Pharaoh's heart, and many times he's said that he will. In actual practice, in the actual events, the story has stressed... Fairly strongly, the agency of the people involved, mm. and and uh, I think you know why why did this problem arise in the first place? Why why were they slaves for hundreds of years? Why was there? Why were they oppressed?
2: And because the pharaoh didn't know Joseph. Yeah,
0: but God God seems to have created a universe in which things have consequence. Yeah, and and He's decided to respect that, and 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 when He says. Um, and I think we have skipped it. We've missed it in my enthusiasm because I'm leafing through bits that I've scribbled notes on. But where's the one where it says, I could have just killed everyone in Egypt?
2: Yeah, that I think we have skipped that. Um, chapter 9, verse 14, 15. For if by now I had put forth my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, you would then have been cut off from the earth. But indeed, for this reason, I have allowed you to remain in order to show you my power, and in order to proclaim my name through the earth.
3: Hmm. I, I'd be very interested to hear from a, an Old Testament scholar, a Hebrew scholar, um, to, what, to what extent the, the ancient Israelites believed that God as the creator, um, therefore, causes everything to happen. So everything that happens is done by God. Because as you said, Cam, he created a system that has cause and effect. But he is the origin of, of all of it.
0: And in that sense, I agree with the mindset. If, if the pain and suffering happened because there were free agents, as in, as in I, don't have to, I don't have to say that God willfully decided and intervened to have the slaves and all the rest of it, but if, but if they were there because they were free agents, anything that happens in the world, it ultimately has to be God's responsibility because He created a world that was capable of producing those events,
3: mm, and He created free agents. And I mean, that's that's a
1: very core Christian belief that God created free agents. There's a sense in which I find that explanation of the cross so much more satisfying than a penal substitutionary atonement model. It's it's God saying. I will be here in the world and will interact with the world and will experience myself the consequences of this world for which I am responsible.
3: Side, side, quick mm-hmm. side note on, on our, our shared distaste of the penal substitution model, a, a listener of the podcast has given me a book recommendation for us. Oh, good. Um, which I will I, I'll maybe sh- share at the end. Well, I can mention the name now. It's called Healing the Gospel. A radical vision for grace, justice, and the cross.
0: Mm. Oh, fantastic! Uh,
3: for anybody who wants to look it up, um,
1: we can maybe talk about it more after. All right. Yeah. Uh, I, I, and, and at this point, I think uh, this is a this is a poem that you put me onto, Ken, um, and and it's it's one that is very disturbing, but addresses this issue in a very artistic way. It's called Friday Morning by Sydney Carter. I'm going to read it. It was on a Friday morning that they took me from the cell and I saw they had a carpenter to crucify as well. You can blame it on to Pilate, you can blame it on the Jews, you can blame it on the devil. It's God, I accuse. You can blame it on to Adam, you can blame it on to Eve, you can blame it on the apple, but that I can't believe. It was God that made the devil and the woman and the man and there wouldn't be an apple if it wasn't in the plan. Now Barabbas was a killer and they let Barabbas go. But you are being crucified for nothing that I know. But your God is up in heaven and he doesn't do a thing with a million angels watching and they never move a wing. It's God they ought to crucify instead of you and me, I said to the carpenter hanging on the tree. To hell with Jehovah, to the carpenter I said. I wish that a carpenter had made the world instead. Goodbye and good luck to you. Our ways will soon divide. Remember me in heaven as the man you hung beside.
2: Hmm.
1: Quite confronting.
0: Yeah.
2: I think that... One of the most profound messages of the story that we have in the, in the opening of the Bible, in the start of Genesis, is that for some reason, and it can at times be stream, extremely difficult for us to understand exactly why, but for some reason, this free agency that you're talking about, Cam, is actually profoundly central to what God is doing.
0: Do you, do you know what I thought also Lot. <clears throat> I thought also about um the passage that we've discussed a long time ago in a previous episode in the story of the flood where it says that God was sorry he made the world. We always treat that as if he was pleased and then he got to a certain point where he said, right, that was the straw that broke the mm. the divine camel's back. I've had enough. Mm. I've changed my mind. But what if, what if it's the case that whenever he sees people using their agency to harm other people and to make the world a worse place. He is sorry that the world was made, but whenever he sees people doing the right thing, he is happy. Mm. In other words, what if the statement is saying, this sort of misconduct and mistreatment of other people makes me sorry I made the world because um, it would be better not to, not to be than to be that sort of person.
1: Uh, yeah. and, and, and there's a sense in which God is both joyous and sorrowful uh, at the same time with this world that he's mm. made he he loves the beauty and he loves the love and he loves the relationship and the interaction and the positive things in the world uh, and he's distraught at the suffering and the evil uh, that's in the world so so both of those things coexist uh, in God at the same time
0: there's a there's a few passages that we should read um. Having identified the problem, I think it would be wrong of us not to read the passage where the angel visits the Egyptian houses. It's in chapter 12. At midnight, the Lord struck down the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of all the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. It's an absolutely awful thing. And along the same vein of, as what you were saying, Ken, uh, what if the cross is God saying, because I decided to create a world with free agents in it and respect their agency. And Pharaoh d- decided, chose for his heart to be hardened. And so I hardened it. And this resulted in the death of, of many, many babies. And I am responsible for that. And just as, just as Pharaoh was responsible for the death of the children of Israel and his own for, firstborn were killed, what, what, if, what if now the, the innocent babe born to guilty parents becomes on the cross the innocent son of God, son of not perhaps a guilty God, but a responsible God? If, if, you, if, you, said, if you said the charge is that many awful things happen in this world, then God would plead guilty.
3: And, and, and yet, Cam... The, the death of the Israelites firstborn at Pharaoh's hand on Pharaoh's instructions was unquestionably a choice of Pharaoh's. You can say that the death of the firstborn of all of Egypt was also a result of the choice of Pharaoh in that he could have let the Israelites go at any point up until now. But the act of killing in this case, was not a natural event. It was not an agent of men. Mm. It was directly done by God. So That's something uh, I really have trouble with, to be honest. Although
0: although God respects uh, human agency that does not prevent himself as acting as an agent. That's the sort of tightrope that he's walking and he obviously has immense power. There's other elements too where huge violence is done and they can't all be explained away. Something which is a much easier story to cope with is, of course, the story of David and Goliath, where Goliath turns the conflict between nations into a conflict between their gods. Hmm. And David says, all right, well, that's easy. It's easy. If it's his god against our god, then our god's better, and David goes out and wins. And that, that sentiment is one I would like to apply to this story, and I think, in essence, it does. It is, though, much more complicated because the babies. Involved are not this the adult Goliath making making their own choices. They are not. But I do think, parties. I do think, Luke, that it it must be the case that God is incessantly faced with situations that provide no good option. The fact that God does the bare minimum required, the absolute bare minimum required, is is proved by the fact that Pharaoh only changes his mind enough for the children to exit the city. It seems like. Like uh, God, God yeah. calibrates this fairly finely. His intervention fairly finely, and well, that, and that, to leave <coughs> to leave the people in servitude is going to re- result in many deaths. Also, my and God will be responsible for them. My immediate
3: question would be, why couldn't God just kill the Pharaoh? If he's, he's so capable of killing people, in in order to let the Israelites go free, just kill the Pharaoh.
2: So that, that but we, that presupposes that killing the pharaoh. I, I'm, would presu- be a... I'm
3: presupposing a lot of things, yeah. <laughs> but it's presupposing we, that that would. Let, let me put a question to Ken: um, our our flawed human justice system. Do do we admit or do we allow in any way the punishing of innocence in order to hurt the guilty, or in order to achieve a certain outcome within our society? i.e. by uh, being a deterrent for example? Um,
1: the answer, well, there there are a few parts to that and you. it's a question I'd prefer to take on notice and reflect on somewhat deeply. <laughs> well, well, we can um, absolutely come back to
3: it next week. Uh, you don't have to answer it now because uh, I
1: know it's, it's a tough one. A, a, couple of, a couple of things I would say in relation to that uh, is, first of all, the suggestion that it is somehow permissible to punish a guilty person for the purpose of stopping somebody else from doing it is not one that is necessarily readily apparently just. Uh, indeed, C.S. Lewis wrote an essay on that in which he said it is not just. Um, it is only just to punish the person to, uh, m- for the crime that they committed, not in order to achieve some other societal objective, but um, uh, put that to one side uh, the The answer to the question is, in part, yes, we do allow the punishment of innocence, because we set a standard which, in human terms, permits error. Um, uh, and it is possible for an innocent person to be convicted. And for the law to view them as guilty because the correct procedure was followed in order to ascertain whether those who were making the decision could properly be satisfied of guilt. The law does not um, say as a matter of fact that person was guilty. What the law says is after following this procedure, which we are satisfied has a sufficient degree of accuracy to be relied on, those 12 people or that decision maker were satisfied without a reasonable doubt that the person had committed the crime. That does not mean, as a matter of truth and fact, they have committed the crime. So in that way, the system does allow the punishment of an innocent. And, and it is unavoidable that that occur in a human system because we are not omniscient, even even corporately. So, so that's a partial answer to the question. So the answer is sort of yes, but I'm not sure that it really goes to the heart of what you're asking. uh, Well, I I would say it's it wouldn't be
3: considered a desirable outcome. Oh, it's certainly not considered an inevitable necessity of the fact that our knowledge and our ability to Prove things conclusively are are, are limited.
0: There's um, extra dimensions to this too, though, Luke. Um, we've had discussions previously. This doesn't again doesn't solve your problem. But is it only individuals that are culpable? Cannot organisations or Ooh. or or cultures be culpable of things which the individual parties within it may not be? Um, or no, they can't be pinpointed to one individual. Mm. But collectively, I and it's it, certainly well, the case that I, I, don't,
3: I don't know. This is a view we really have much discussed. I am making the assumption that those who were killed here were punished. Maybe the punishment is on those who weren't killed, and those who were killed were yeah. whisked off to heaven immediately and have spent uh, the eons since in paradise. I, you know, that's that's the sort of possibility that you have
1: with the well, Christian beliefs. And, and the other, the other part of it too. Luke, is that um as I recall it, uh and certainly there's a reference in Patriarchs and Prophets to this, um, there was opportunity for the Egyptians to have the benefit oh, of the Passover. Ken. Ken, Ken,
0: Ken. It's explicitly stated in the in chapter twelve, I think. There's rules about it it, it says that any foreigner who wants to be observed the Passover can uh, their males can be circumcised, and they are to be treated as Israelites for the so purpose of the Passover.
3: And that implies that there would have been Egyptians who became Israelites at this well, time and went it, with them.
2: Uh, it it says that once they're in the wilderness, it speaks of the children of Israel and the great multitude, the Egyptians that came with. Look, them. it's
0: in verse thirty-eight. A mixed multitude also went up with them. Mm. So, so. Uh, it, what's frustrating is it doesn't say whether any people who were previously not Israelites, but through this process, because it does say that Moses was well respected by the people, that the Israelites were greatly feared by the Egyptians, that they many Egyptians protected their own livestock from the plagues and all the other things that happened. It would be nice to know if some of them did decide to join the people of Israel and participate in the Passover feast. It seems likely Mm. From the way the story is told, it just doesn't say it explicitly, and that irritates me. That the thing that I wanted to get back to is How the question: from
3: historically factual, modern modern scientific revolution mindset written, yeah, what's a- account?
0: What what's interesting is that something can be historical without being a history. So it oh, doesn't record the names of Pharaoh or any of his officials, but it records by name the two. Um, israelite midwives who tried to protect babies that were born <laughs> they're given the dignity of having their names recorded so it's 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 certainly not a history in the sense of a, an account of the great powers at play it's it's got its own emphasis uh so why did god why did god want to send the plagues well he wanted to deliver his people um uh, why did he harden pharaoh's heart It doesn't seem from the account, even though he knew that he would, it doesn't seem that he hardened Pharaoh's heart until Pharaoh had already done it at least twice.
1: So he he, Mm. he honoured Pharaoh's choice to have a hard heart in the same way that he can honour our choice for him to soften our hearts.
0: It certainly doesn't seem to be overriding. It doesn't seem that Pharaoh would have objected in any way to the hardening of his heart. It, there doesn't mm. seem to be God imposing his will on Pharaoh. That's, that's not the way the story is It's not inconsistent
1: with Pharaoh's own choice.
0: The plagues seem to be carefully calibrated to, as much as possible, win the Egyptians over. And it seems to have enjoyed some success. And it certainly uh, is not excessive, at least in God's view. God says, I could have done a lot a lot more. And the, the punchline, I think, is where we're going to turn to Deuteronomy. When you look at this story, what does it mean? I mean, that's what we're really getting to. What what? I don't want to know what happened. I want to know what does it mean. Does it mean this? You could imagine it. the story being told in subsequent generations among the Israelites this way. We have a God. We were slaves in Egypt, and our God came down and just absolutely obliterated. He zapped them. And we've got a fantastic God, and he's on our side, and he's against them. And whenever anyone comes to oppress us, he's going to step in, and there'll be hail and frogs and blood and and go and kill all their firstborn it's great to be us and it sucks to be you like that's, that's a very that's a very um, just on the events that happened that's a sort of legitimate way that story could have been remembered
2: I, I honestly thought you were about to say that's a very Adventist way to story. <laughs> <laughs> all, all I'm commenting on is that it is a very very easy trap to fall into isn't it the feeling of I must be special God is on my side
0: God well, this is, exactly, this is exactly what God steps in and specifically reverses it. And he does it in many places. But the place I want to pick up is the one that we've already talked a lot about in recent episodes, but in Deuteronomy 5, in the mm. Sabbath commandment. So when God's saying, when, I want, when you look back on this story and you're trying to decide what does it mean, this is how you are to remember the events. This is, this is the essence of what the story means. Uh, this, is, this is what it's about. What it's about is this, you were once slaves in Egypt, you were oppressed, so you must be kind to other people. In the Sabbath commandment, you're to give your servants rests, you're to give your alien within your gates rests, you're to give your animals rests, male and female servants, visitors, everyone is going to have rest. And it's not the only place in the commandment that this phrase is used. Many times it states, because you were once slaves in Egypt. Therefore, don't buy and sell the land in perpetuity because it's not yours, it's mine, and I delivered you into that land and you're not to build a society where the rich get richer and the poor get poorer because you were once slaves in Egypt. You should, rem- you should remember what that's like. In other words, God's, not sa- God's saying, I'm not on your side. I'm, the- I'm on the side of anyone who is oppressed. Mm-hmm. So what-, what the story means is Pharaoh hardened his heart and he oppressed you and I had to step in to do something about that be careful you don't end up becoming like Pharaoh. Mm. That's, that's what the story means. Mm.
2: There's a very explicit verse, and I've used it in a sermon once before. And it, it literally says, basically, if you, if, you cause, if you end up causing people to cry out the cry of of the oppressed, don't think that I'll come and protect you just because you're my people. I'll do to you what I did to the Egyptians. I'll come with the sword. You know, basically, don't mm. be the, the, don't be the pharaoh. oppressive empire power.
0: Yeah, so um, the problem we have with the story seems to be the same problem that God has with the story. God's saying, I'm, I'm not into this oppression stuff. That's, 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 not what I, that's not what I want you to take from this story. Uh, it doesn't rest easy with me to see people exercising privilege over other people mm. and persecuting them. Uh, you are not to do that. You are you. You are not to to be that way. And and there's all sorts of morals to pull out. The idea that the idea that our choices can limit the options available to God is a terrifying one. We we ought we ought think really carefully about that. The, the idea that um, that
1: our choices limit our options is also a terrifying one. And yeah. and I think this story uh, illustrates that if we take your interpretation of the way that. Pharaoh chose because the choice that he made before he even knew who God was, before he had even seen a snake, uh, set the course of the choices that he was to make in in the in, in the very end where there was disaster waiting.
0: In the very early accounts, Ken, it doesn't say that he chose. It just says that his heart was hard. It's only partway through the account that he begins to choose. I mean, there's, there's a lot of depth to it. I mean, I don't think that that solves the problem. No. But but it it gives the problem a different context. God wanted to free the Israelites. Uh, Pharaoh didn't want them to go. God had God chose to work with that, or to, to respect it. He God acted as a free agent, but he respected Pharaoh's free agency. So then the moral is: How will you use your agency?
3: Hmm.
1: How should we then live?
0: We're going to leave it there. It was a long episode. It was much longer than my sermon was because when I preached it, when I preached it, Locke, I didn't have people interrupting me with extra exciting ideas and <laughs> interesting questions and new the challenges. The downside
3: is and... the downside of preaching.
0: Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Exactly right, Luke. Exactly right. Thank you all for, for listening. We are going to have to wrap it up there. We're, we're out of time. If you have thoughts, please email them to us. And feel free to share this podcast with anyone that you feel would benefit. We hope that you are all doing as well as can be done in a a state of lockdown if you are. And uh, we look forward to, to things improving.